Well, good morning. Might have uh, cut our time really short. I just ran into a young man, I won't mention his name, out in the hallway, and he asked me if the sermon was going to be about Jonah today. And I said, yeah, I think we have today and maybe two or three more. He said, well, good. My dad gave me a challenge to write down three things that I learned from the sermon today that, on Jonah that I could apply, and I think I already have two of them. I thought, that's great. I can skip the first two-thirds of the sermon. We'll just hit the end. He'll get his one point, and we'll go. So, kidding. Not about him, though. That's great. A um, couple of announcements before we get going. You should see them in your bulletins, but just as a reminder... Uh, We have a members meeting tomorrow at 6.30 p.m., and the main thing on that agenda is space. We we have some challenges there, and Rhett Jensen and and Mark Putney are going to present some early thoughts. They presented it to the advisory council last Monday um, about kind of what can be done and should get people thinking and moving and considering what might be next. Um, so that's at 6.30 tomorrow. A reminder, April 30th is a prayer meeting, so hopefully you'll all be here for that at 5.30. And then the other thing I wanted to point out was we will have baby dedications or child dedications on May 14th. And so if you're interested in that, um, contact Laura or contact me so we can get your, your names and all of that. We'll sort of put that together. If you have questions about that, why do we do it? What are we doing with baby dedications? Um, text me, call me, stop by. I'm happy to walk through that. It's a neat time. It's a neat time for families. It's been a while since we've done it. I know some of you were uh, scheduled to have that done several months ago, and then right before, it was that fun time in Northeast Iowa where everybody got sick, and so so many people were falling out uh, on that Saturday. We decided to postpone it. So we're going to do it this this week, and I put child dedications because it's not just for babies. I know that there's at least one family where we'll have some younger children up here as well, and that's a great thing. It's an opportunity for the church to really commit to the families. We're going to open this morning with Isaiah chapter 55, which is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. I meant to send out a link when I sent out uh, the thing on Friday, the email on Friday, so I'll just mention it here that Andrew Peterson has a wonderful song called The Sower's Song. If you look that up on YouTube, Andrew Peterson, The Sower's Song, and it's based on this psalm, or this, uh, this passage out of Isaiah, and it is, it is so inspiring to me. So because I love it, I have to say a few things about this before we read it. This, this chapter of Isaiah is compared often to the Gospel of John. And it's compared that way, it's sort of a summary version of it because it's making a passionate appeal for people to open their eyes to the richness of the gifts that God is offering freely to His people. And it's calling on people to grasp those free gifts, the free gift of salvation in Christ and looking forward to the culmination when there will be a new heavens and new earth, when all of the needs will be met, to grasp that promise in both faith and repentance while there is still time. It's a message that's very similar in a way to what we're going to see in Jonah in chapter 3 that we start today, and it's the same message that is given to the church, to go out and call people and proclaim the gospel, call them to repentance. So if you outlined this chapter, it would go something like this. You would see the restoration and renewal of creation. You'd see individual needs being met. 
You see that that rested on hearing the word of the Lord, and then the central aspect of this passage in Isaiah is the content of the word of the Lord that is proclaimed, which is to repent, to turn away from sin, to trust in God for His forgiveness. And then you see the seriousness of that call, and it closes with the guaranteed effectiveness of God's word, that everything in God's word will come to pass in the end. So let's read Isaiah 55 as we turn our hearts to worship this morning. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me, Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts <coughs> excuse me, higher than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy, and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, And the trees of the fields shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord. An everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Well, good morning again. As I said, we'll return to the book of Jonah this morning, and we're in Jonah chapter 3, and we're just going to cover the first five verses this morning and the rest next week, because here at the very first part, we encounter important lessons about the very unchanging nature of God and the power of the Word of God when it is faithfully proclaimed in all of its truth, which is the very source of our eternal hope in Jesus Christ. Because God reveals Himself as eternally perfect in His divine attributes, and one of those is that He is unchanging. Something that's hard sometimes for us to get our heads wrapped around, but He says it several times in Scripture, Malachi 3.6, most notably He says, I, the Lord, do not change. And there is both a warning and there is a promise in that statement that the Lord does not change. I would say you can take comfort even in the warning. 
Because you're never left guessing. You don't have to guess that God's changing all the time. And what might have been a sin yesterday is no longer a sin today. But what was okay yesterday is now a sin today and you're under judgment for it. No, it it is a warning for the world in a way. Because the fact that he does not change means that what constitutes sin and what constitutes rebellion against God and what constitutes hatred of who God is remains always constant throughout all eternity. It does not change as culture changes and as it ebbs and flows throughout history. And it does ebb and flow. There's nothing new under the sun today. These are all the same sins we see in our culture, the same sins that you can read about in the Old Testament. And it does not change just because people have a different preference, because they prefer darkness instead of the righteousness and perfection of Jesus Christ in His church. The promise, though, The great promise in the fact that God does not change is that God's divine plan of redemption never changes. He calls all people simply to repent and believe in Jesus Christ who He sent to live and die and rise again for our sins. And we know that God is patient. God tells us He is patient so that all who are to be saved in Christ Jesus will come to full repentance and faith. We see that in 2 Peter. This unchanging nature of God that we'll see in Jonah this morning. The theological term for that is a big word that you'll sometimes stumble across called immutability. And it just means that God eternally exists as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and His unchanging and unchanged... Boy, I defaulted into a little King James there for those of you who like King James. Brody's nodding. He's a King James guy. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for those of you who don't use King James. And I don't, but He's unchanging. He is unchangeable in His eternal perfections. That means His knowledge, His love, His mercy, uh, they all stay constant forever. And God's message of forgiveness, His message of salvation for the world, they don't change. They never have changed. They've always been the same. The world always wants a different gospel. The world wants a gospel that is salvation plus living in sin. One foot in Jesus' camp, one foot in something else. But God's message is clear, and it doesn't change. It's repent, which means turn away from sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And repentance is always necessary. You might remember from our study in Colossians how the Apostle Paul characterized the ministry of the gospel. Right? He said, Him we proclaim, Jesus Christ, we proclaim to everyone, both warning everyone and teaching everyone. And warning and teaching are seen in the ministry of the prophets called by God, just like Jonah. It's the same ministry that's given to preachers today. It's the same ministry evangelists have, and it's the same ministry every single person who follows Jesus Christ has to both warn and teach. Now, we know that Jonah was not excited about this message that he was given. We saw that in the first chapter. He was supposed to go and tell sinners that they are sinners, that they will be condemned for all eternity for their sin if they don't turn back to God. And people don't like that message. It's hard to give. And people generally don't like it today. You you see backflips, you see somersaults as people mishandle the very word of God uh, to try to redefine sin, to try to redefine what he means and what he says so that we can tolerate, we can accept, we can sometimes even celebrate the very things that God has so clearly spoken about. Now you see it in the church as well as in the world. But as we'll see today, God does not change. He never changes You always know what's right and what's wrong. It doesn't change. He's patient, but he is firm in calling his children to faith and obedience. 
He's not subject to the whims or desires of his creatures. And we can be thankful then for his patience with us, always giving us a second chance when we approach him humbly. And we can be extremely thankful that he's unchanging because we can trust then every word of Scripture and the promise that he gives us in Jesus Christ that we can be saved by grace through faith in him. And we turn to our text, we're going to see many of these things play out. Jonah 3, 1 through 5, it reads this way. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We pray that your spirit would use your word in our hearts this morning, that you would transform us, that you would convict us to draw us close to Jesus. Convict us so that we too will experience the grace and the joy of true repentance and following him. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, and we pray that we would see that today in your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, because we had Good Friday and we had Easter last week, it feels at least to me like we have been a long time away from Jonah. So let's just do a quick review so that we get up to where we're at. We know Jonah is a prophet of God, a prophet of Yahweh. He had faithfully prophesied to King Jeroboam too, so he had seen God's word come to fruition. We hit chapter 1, and Jonah gets given a new command by God. He says, go to Nineveh. It's a city that's five or 600 miles north of where he's at. They're enemies of Israel, and they're Gentiles. And he tells him, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, we know what Jonah did. Jonah instead fled in the opposite direction. He went away from God's people. Just like people today, they don't like the word of God. It's too convicting, so they will stay away. And we keep trying to call them back, Right? So Jonah fled in the opposite direction, and he secured passage on a ship that was headed for the pagan land of Tarshish, 3,000 miles in the opposite direction. But God never lets his children go. God disciplines his wayward children. He disciplines those he loves, but he doesn't let us go. And so discipline fell upon Jonah. A storm was hurled upon the sea. Uh, We know that he was cast overboard to appease the wrath of God, and that Jonah was left to drown. The pagan sailors, on the other hand, seeing the grace of God, they believed. They turned to God. But we know that Jonah didn't drown because we're still reading in chapter 3 about him, right? God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah up. And when we explored that, we saw Jonah feeling that he's in the depths of Sheol. He's swallowed by Leviathan. He gets a glimpse of what his end might be like if he were successful in fleeing from the presence of God. Now, we can't imagine what it would have been like inside the belly of that sea creature. But we do know in our own lives that adversity, the trials, suffering, they can reawaken our faith. They can draw us closer to God, and they're often used by God to bring His wayward children back to Him. But it works only because you know God. You must know God. Knowing God is the key. And we see that throughout Scripture. You can think of Job, for example. Job experienced greater trials than virtually anybody else. And in the midst of those trials, right in the heart of Job, he says, though God slay me, I will hope in him. Such an odd thing to say, right? Though it is God who brings this upon me, my hope rests in him. And it's because he knew God. 
Now, Jonah knew God. He remembered his unchanging, his perfect goodness. And that brings even the greatest of human misery into perspective when you know that God is always good, always good. He spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, and he cried out to God, chapter 2. And he didn't plead for his deliverance. He didn't beg for his deliverance. He came to realize instead the sovereignty of God and the foolishness of turning away from God's word. He began to see the reality, as he said in chapter 2, verse 9, that salvation belongs to the Lord, and his grace is granted according to his will and on his terms. And he suddenly realized his absolute and utter dependence on the grace of God. This is the very grace that he had refused to bring to a lost and dying people in Nineveh at God's command. But he now sees it in his own life. And so he, he turns to God, and he turns to God in an odd way, in thanksgiving. Because he recalls, remember he looks to the temple, he recalls God's mercy and grace in providing a substitute for sins so that we can approach him. As someone who could be sacrificed to pay the penalty of sin on behalf of God's people and all of it points forward to the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. At the end of chapter 2, we see God answer the prayer of Jonah, and it says, the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. We could have titled this sermon, in a way, Back to the Future, right? Because Jonah has worked very, very hard to flee from the presence of God. He has suffered for his disobedience. He has suffered God's discipline. And now he finds himself sitting right back where he started, Now, we'll cover the text under three headings, which you have in your bulletins and in the outline. Abounding grace, God's unchanging message, and grace in repentance. The theme clearly being the grace of God. And we get to see these many attributes of God in the book of Jonah. And we've explored His sovereignty in pouring out His grace and mercy, whether it was to a disobedient prophet saving his life, or whether it was to the pagan sailors. And the entire book actually begins with a display of God's grace. He is calling his prophet to go into a sinful pagan land and call them to repentance and call them to faith. Now, we should be shocked a little bit by what we read at the beginning of our passage. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, the second time. And in that little phrase should lie one of our greatest hopes because we can turn to that and see the abundant grace of God. It is one thing for God to save Jonah. That would be a tremendous act of grace there that we would have a hard time understanding because Jonah fled the opposite direction. But God doesn't just save him. He calls him back into service. He restores him to the office of prophet to go and proclaim God's word to a perishing people. We're reminded in Psalm 103 of who God is. It says, for as as high as the heavens are above the earth, So great is God's steadfast love toward those who fear Him. And we need to take note of this, those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. That's a wonderful thing. God does not hold grudges against people who will humble themselves and come to Him seeking the mercy of God and the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ. And we keep being reminded salvation belongs to the Lord and His grace and His love and His mercy, they're beyond our comprehension, but yet He chooses to save us and He chooses to remove from us our sins. And He has done that, of course, we know, by sending Jesus and Jesus came with a message 
calling people to repent of their sins and believe in Him for forgiveness and life. God provided the sacrifice in His Son, which is something we focused on in Good Friday, right? And on Easter. And God's promised by His Word that by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, saying, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That's Hebrews 10. That is something to hang on to if you walk with Christ. He promises, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And so you have to ask, have you submitted to the Lordship of Christ? Do you trust in Jesus' perfect obedience, obedience that took Him to the cross to make the once-for-all sacrifice for sins? And so do we approach God in fear, right? That means, do we approach God giving Him the worship that He deserves and holding Christ above all things in life? Because if that's true, then this promise of removal of sins, of God choosing to forget and not hold our sins against us, to see in us the righteousness of Christ, that belongs to you by the grace of God. But none of us will be perfect. We will have moments in life that we deeply regret. We cover this frequently, right? The Christian life is not one of perfection. We just won't hit that. The Christian life is one of daily repentance. The Christian life is one where we wake up every morning realizing that the gospel is first and foremost for us. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that's for us. Because we rest in that promise that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. And it is indeed God's abundant grace that brings everybody here today to worship. Because we have to ask ourselves, have have you ever in your life failed to perfectly obey God? I think the answer to that should be pretty easy. But I mean in the context of even the Great Commission and what Jonah says. It's something that plagues me. I, I can't count the number of times in my life that I can reflect back on a conversation, somebody that I've been with, and felt shame because in that conversation I never ever mentioned Jesus. I never brought up the gospel with them. I wasn't going to share it. I left the person happy. They were happy. We were friendly, but they're destined for eternal punishment. And I suspect we've all had that experience if we're honest with ourselves because we have built in this love for self, a love for our own comfort. We don't want to be embarrassed and that doesn't reflect a love for others. It fuels the failure that we see. And yet, If you look and you see how God deals with Jonah here, it gives us hope. It gives us hope in God's promise of grace that if we will turn to Jesus Christ in prayer, he might grant us a second chance or a third chance or a 50th chance throughout our life because God will use his people even though there are times where we've revolted against his calling where we haven't obeyed or we've ignored the clear teaching of his word and galloped off into willful disobedience. He disciplines those he loves. He draws us back. He is a God of abounding grace and love and mercy. And if he didn't use people who had failed him, then none of us could serve God. That's an amazing thing. If God wrote people off who failed to obey him perfectly, nobody, not me and not anybody else, could actually serve God. God's dealings with Jonah show that God is indeed a God of second chances. 
And one author put it this way, if we are honest with ourselves, in honest, sober reflection, it compels the saint, the one who follows Christ, to speak of God, not of God as the second chance, but God of the 999th chance. If Jonah doesn't give you enough hope that God comes to him a second time, you can turn to other examples in Scripture. There are many, but we'll cover three. Abraham, Moses, and Peter. Just look to these men, these patriarchs and an apostle. Abraham was raised in a family of idolaters. They worshipped demons. They worshipped the devil because that's what idolatry is. Even three generations later, you see in Genesis 31 that Rachel is hiding the idols of her father. It shows that Abraham's descendants, even three generations down from him, are still drawn to pagan worship. Well, Stephen gives this brilliant sermon in Acts chapter 7. And in Acts chapter 7, he tells us that God in all of his glory appeared to Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia and called him to leave his family and go to the promised land. And what happened? He didn't go. He didn't go. He stopped short. They began to leave and they found a land they liked better. They settled in Haran. So we would see that and we would think, okay, well then does God then just move on? He can choose another man to build a nation from, another patriarch, a man of faith who will obey him perfectly. He could condemn Abraham, leave him, and condemn him forever, leaving him in the paganism of his father. Abraham would have stayed in Haran. They were a wealthy family. They were comfortable. And then we see this wonderful thing like we see all the time in Scripture, but God. God doesn't work that way. God takes action, but God, Abraham's now 75 years old, and God came to him a second time to give him the exact same command because God's plans don't change. They don't change to suit our desires. They don't change because we rebel against him. He gave him the exact same command. He says in Genesis 12, go from your country, which is now Haran, where they've stopped, and your kindred and your father's house into the land that I will show you. And we know the rest of the story. Abraham obeys God this time. He trusts in God, and God fulfilled his promise to make a nation of people, Israel, out of the descendants of Abraham, who would bring glory or were intended to bring glory to God and to be a blessing to the nations around them. God would eventually bring forth the Messiah, the Christ, through Abraham, so that he could save every tribe, tongue, and nation like us. It's the same thing with Moses. It's the same thing with Moses. We don't get told a lot about how Moses grew up in those first 40 years. We just know that he grew up, he was raised in Pharaoh's household. But yet you still know from Scripture that he had to have had some revelation from God that he was the one who was supposed to save the people from Egyptian slavery. In Exodus 2, verses 11 and 12, it tells us the story of how Moses saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and he went out and he murdered the Egyptian. Now, Acts 7, same sermon of Stephen, says he supposed, Moses supposed, that his brothers, the Israelites, would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. See, Moses was hasty. Moses was going to do it his own way. And he was forced to flee. He had murdered a man. Again, we look at this and say, okay, well, God must look upon this and say, he's a murderer. I need to choose somebody cleaner, someone who's going to obey me. So for 40 years, Moses is in the wilderness. We don't get to read what was going on in his head, but 
I have to think, he had lots and lots of time in the wilderness over 40 years to think about how he had failed God and been forced to flee to Midian. And then we see again, but God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Exodus 3.2, Moses is now 80 years old and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. In verse 10, God now issues the same command to Moses. He didn't write him off. He didn't choose another for the task. No, God said, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you, may, <clears throat> that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Second chance. The biggest second chance of all we know so well, especially coming right off of Easter, is the Apostle Peter. Peter, who boldly stated to Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Every time I read that, I think uh, I'm sort of the same way. I think probably all of you are too. But we know in life that when persecution, as small as it comes, is threatened, it's pretty easy to forget those promises that I would never waver in my faith. I would follow you even to death. You know the rest of the story, right? Jesus is arrested. All of his disciples fled from him. Peter follows at a distance. John lets him into the courtyard of the high priest where Jesus has been arrested and is being interrogated. And it was there that Peter who had been chosen by Jesus, who had walked with Jesus for three years, who had witnessed the miracles, who had heard the teaching, he denies Jesus. He doesn't just deny him, he denies that he's ever even known him. Doesn't know who he is. He denies Jesus three times, and he's within eyesight of Jesus. Jesus looks at him. Now, if we put ourselves in the shoes of Christ for a second, could any of us forgive such a betrayal as we suffered? Maybe. Maybe, at least on the surface, we could say that. But could we do what Christ did? Could we forgive and rebuild? Could we restore that person into a trusted relationship, a trusted leader, an advocate? I don't think so. I think that takes the Spirit of God working. Jesus would ask, you know this story, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He'd ask him three times in John 21 to restore him for denying him three times. Each time Peter said yes. And Jesus would command him, then go feed my sheep. Walk faithfully, teach faithfully, feed my sheep. And at the end it says, after saying all this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Follow me. A short way of saying, obey me. Walk like I walk. There's so much hope in these stories and all the many others from King David, Solomon. You can just go through all of them. If you are stuck. If you are in that point of spiritual depression, if you're slipping, if you're, you're wandering aimlessly, if you're feeling like you're outside of the loving grace of God at times, if you failed and you know you failed to live for Jesus, then just pray for a second chance. Pray for His forgiveness. Pray for His mercy. Pray for His grace. Pray for a second chance. The one thing you can be assured of, it is, it is the will of God that we follow Him in obedience. It is the will of God that all of His people follow Jesus Christ in obedience to His Word. And so here's the promise we have in Scripture, 1 John 5. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And there could be nothing more crystal clear than His will is to obey Him. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. It's an amazing promise for a second chance. Now, one thing that distinguishes us from God, and there are many, is, as we've said, God is unchanging, and we are in a constant state of change in this life. We learn, we grow, and our sin 
and our rebellion, whether it's big or small, it actually changes us throughout the course of our lives. If we feed that sin, we continue to drift. We suffer at a minimum from the broken fellowship that we have with God. At a maximum, it may actually reflect that we were never saved to begin with, that our profession of faith was a false profession of faith, right? First John 2, they, they left us because they were not of us. They just looked that way. But we have to remember that while God never tempts us to sin, God never causes us to sin, in His sovereign plan of divine grace, He does use all of us. He uses our experiences, our foolishness, our follies to achieve His purpose. He can use all of it. We see this in the picture God gives the prophet Jeremiah. He goes to the potter's house, right, in Jeremiah 18. And he observes this, the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hands, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. That was an illustration that God used to convey the message that he will do the same with his people. He will reshape us. He will remold us. He will use the substance of our past. He'll cleanse us from our sins, but then he will use us in walking in obedience to achieve his good purposes. We have to repent. You must turn from the sins in your life. You must trust in Christ for salvation. But God uses our past to equip us to minister to people in our present. You've all seen this. There is something genuine about our approach to people who are suffering or trapped in sin when we've been there too. They can sense it. We can sense it when someone comes to us in that same same situation. So God uses people like me. He uses people like you, even with all of our scars in life. Because one of the marks of experiencing God's saving grace in our lives is our obedience to His Word. We long to obey Him. In Jonah 1, 3, the response to God's command was simple, but it was wrong. God said, arise and go to Nineveh. Instead, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of God. But now he's experienced God's grace in a powerful way. And this time when God says, go, Jonah 3, 3 says, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. God didn't change. Nothing about God changed here. God's message to the world didn't change. Jonah did change. And his experience had taught him to rely on God and to be faithfully obedient to His Word. If you pay careful attention to these examples and all the examples like this in Scripture, you'll note that there's a consistency. It points to the grace of God for His children, but His absolute sovereignty in the accomplishment of all He wills to happen. Because God's second chances come with a repeat of the same command, the same command He originally gave. His Word never changes. And that brings us to our second point, God's unchanging message. In Jonah 3, verses 1 and 2, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. You know that's virtually identical to what was said in chapter 1. God had shown His grace to Jonah, speaking to him for a second time, giving him this same command. He had already shown His love and mercy when he saved Jonah from death and destruction. But his sovereignty is now demonstrated in this unchanging command. Because in the end, it is a command that will bring God's grace upon an entire nation. And we read this morning Isaiah chapter 55. And in it, we see the same message that's contained throughout all of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. Verse 7 calls for repentance and faith. It points to the abundance of God's saving grace. 
And it says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. That's repentance. Turn away from your sin, right? Let him turn, return to the Lord. That's turning to God, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now, the challenge we always have in that is, if we're honest, we don't love that message. Not all of it. We love part of it. We like the pardon part. We love the compassion part. But we really, really don't like the part that means you have to tell people who are in sin to recognize that in fact they are in sin, in rebellion against a holy God, and unless they turn away from that and turn toward Jesus Christ, they will be condemned. It's a message for our own hearts first and then for the world. We shrink from that command to be holy for our God is holy, but He doesn't change. His word is consistent on the matter. It's unchanging and it's powerful. And we saw that too in Isaiah 55, verse 11. My word that goes out from my mouth shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I have purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So not only does God's word not change, but no person, no institution can get in the way of it going out. He just remains relentlessly consistent and unchanging. And before we return to Jonah, just consider a New Testament example. Now, sometimes I think it helps because it's too easy to think Jonah is, is way, way, way far away. It's not the church. That's something different. Consider Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. We'll just summarize it. The apostles have just preached a message, and their message is consistent. It shows up throughout the book of Acts. They convict people of sin. They, they call them to recognize their sin. They point them to Jesus Christ as the only source of forgiveness in life. They exhort people to believe and be baptized into the church. And for doing that, the high priest had them arrested and put in a public prison, which is to say it's a bad place. Now, an angel of the Lord is sent, and he is going to release the apostles. And what comes next is what is always the most shocking to me. This is not the only place on earth. So what we would expect is because there's persecution, you just got arrested, he's going to free them, tell them to go out at night, go to this other city where they'll be more receptive and preach to them. But that's not what is said. Verse 20, the angel says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life, which are shorthand for the full gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, you're out of jail now, go back to the exact same place where you were arrested, do the exact same thing you were arrested for, proclaim the same message. And we read the apostles obeyed. Verse 21 says, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. The reaction, a little later, tells us that the leaders were enraged and wanted to kill them. Instead, they only beat them. You just gloss over that, but I can't imagine being drug out and beaten, threatened, and then the whole episode ends in verse 42, saying every day, every day in the temple, the same place they were arrested twice, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The substance of the message was consistent. It's repeated in Acts. Recognize sin. Turn from it. Trust in the living Christ for forgiveness in life. Follow Him in obedience to His Word. It's the same message we have as the church today. It requires an uncompromising faithfulness to the Word of God, which does not change. All of it. It's never based on our cleverness. It's never based on our soft compromises that we can bring people to saving faith. Scripture clearly says it is the gospel, it is all of it, that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And that we cannot... Be ashamed of this truth of God's word in our culture today just because the world hates it. 
The apostles weren't ashamed when they were persecuted, when they were chased from town to town. And Jonah is now going to face what seemed to be an impossible task. He's going to go into one of the most violent cities and tell them they're condemned if they don't turn away from their sin. Now, God's command to Jonah is not exactly the same. It is slightly different in this second instruction. It's subtle, but the emphasis is on that last clause. Jonah must proclaim the message that I, God, tell you. You must tell them what I tell you. Why? Why so so specific? I think it is because we all need to be told that. We're told that over and over in Scripture because our, our fear drives us to compromise. We live in a society, actually, in the West that doesn't say no to anything, so we're always looking for a compromised position. We can do a little of Jesus and a little of what you like, and if we mix them together, that will be okay. It's either that or it's just a lack of trust. God, are you kidding me? If I go tell them this, they're not going to repent, they're going to slaughter me. And when Jonah obeyed, he went according to the word of the Lord. It's just this emphasis over and over again. And you get a clear taste of what his message was in verse 4, where it says, He called out, yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. He's calling out to them that there is a definite period of time. And if you do not turn from your sin and turn to God, He will destroy you. Now, we know that those words achieved God's purpose because we know the end of the story. That's one of the benefits we get. The words that were spoken were blessed, though, because they were simply a proclamation of God's word. They weren't the words of a clever man trying to find a way to convince the Ninevites to believe in God. Forgiveness, salvation, it all depends on repentance. It depends on recognizing sin and turning from it and crying out to God for mercy. There is no other way. Scripture is clear on this. There's no other way for individuals like you and me and those around us in our community. There's no other way for cities like Nineveh or nations like Assyria or like ours. That is why we pray for repentance in our nation. Listen to what God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 18, verses 7 through 10. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice. And you have to understand, as you read these things, Old and New Testament, good is defined by God. Evil is defined by God. It's always in accordance with His word, listening to my voice. Then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. We live in a nation that looks a lot like Nineveh right now. It doesn't look much different. It's hard to figure out if we live in Babylon or Nineveh or the Egyptian Empire, but it looks a lot like Nineveh. And you just have to look around you and listen to the news and you see this. We live in a nation that hates God, that cannot accept any correction. Let me give you a little picture of Nineveh and you'll see how close we actually are. About 200 years before Jonah, we know a ton about the Assyrian Empire and Nineveh because of archaeology. There was a man who led the Assyrian Empire. He had given himself this name, Asher Bel Kala, which is a very humble name. It means king of the universe, right? So, I mean, there's a name. You want to name your kids if you're Asher Bel Kala, king of the universe. He came into Nineveh and he erected nude statues of the goddess Ishtar. Ishtar was the goddess that they worshipped. They worshipped lots of gods, but she was the number one. Now, this was essentially state-funded pornography. 
It wasn't done for any other reason than to generate an erotic response among the people. There was a cultural obsession with pleasure. There was a cultural obsession and fascination in particular with the erotic. Sex had been divorced from marriage. Sex had been divorced from procreation, and it was seen only as a means of physical pleasure. And it began to dominate society such that every single thing was permissible if it gave you instant gratification. And we see it in their poetry and in their music and in their art. One poem, and I'm not going to read you the poem because it's so inappropriate, is titled, Ishtar Will Not Tire. And it begins this way. It says, get all the young men together. The city is built on pleasure. And every single refrain after it, and there are several, I think there was nine, ends with the same statement. The city is built on pleasure. As I was scanning headlines yesterday, I ended up reading an article in The Economist that came out, and it was just timely, talking about our consumption with pleasure and sexual pleasure in the United States in particular, and calling us not to repent and move away from that, but calling us to run toward it more openly. We live in Nineveh. You look at Nineveh, and this is how it's characterized. Greed, violence, sexual deviancy of all types, abortion. Like I said, there's nothing new under the sun. Destruction of the family, that was the rule of the day in their culture. That is the rule of the day in our culture. And this is where Jonah is sent. One commentator says this, Jonah was about to enter unprotected, except for God, unprotected, a city whose inhabitants were preeminently wicked and violent. And he was to threaten them in the name of the Almighty with speedy and complete destruction. It was as going into the lion's den. Nothing but an implicit reliance on the presence, the faithfulness, the power, and the protection of God could possibly bear him through and bear him through in the calmness and courage that would befit an ambassador of God. Now, it might help us then to remember what we're called to individually and as the church. You know the verse well, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. 2 Corinthians 5.20. You look to what God called Jonah to do, it's the same command we get in the Great Commission. We must go and proclaim God's word. Jonah was faithful. He delivered the message clearly. He delivered it without compromise, which is amazing. Times weren't any different then. Remember, he was also coming out of Israel, who was in an apostate state, rebelling against God, worshiping other gods. There is constant pressure today that has brought on the messengers of God always to soften it up a little bit, spin God's word into something that will make people feel good where they are. But that's never the faithful proposition to Scripture. You have to realize when you go out into that world that eternal souls are actually at stake. It's not a game. Eternal souls are at stake, and there is one way to forgiveness and to life. So God never gives any of us, any of His messengers, the option of modifying or correcting or molding His divine and perfect Word to fit the preferences of a sinful man. We can do that, but it's a different gospel. We must proclaim His Word. Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that is very uncomfortable. That is very uncomfortable. 
It is the word of God used by the Holy Spirit that conveys his grace, that conveys his blessings, that pierces through the hardness of closed and rebellious hearts. God uses his word to bring about repentance. And that leads us to our last point, which is the grace of repentance. Because the greatest miracle in the book of Jonah is not that he was swallowed by a fish appointed by God, not that he was spit up on dry land. The greatest miracle in all of Jonah is the repentance and salvation of a nation. Not every single person, obviously, but a mass of them. And it's probably, I would say it is, the single biggest revival in all of human history. We'll cover that more next week. But verse 5 gives us a summary of the response. And then the rest of the verses in chapter 3 actually go into the details. Verse 5 says, The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So we know what happened. Jonah's commanded to proclaim the word of God. It is a message that they are woefully engaged in sin against God. They must stop. They must turn away from it. And they like their sin. People don't hate their sin. They like it. But you have to stop or God's soon going to judge you and he's going to annihilate you. And you have to think. Jonah's thinking the same thing that we would today. That's the message? And you think they're going to repent? Today we would say, no way, no way are we taking that message. Where is the love of God, the grace of God in that message? Listen, God, you can't just proclaim your word to people and expect them to turn to Christ. That's impossible. Do it our way. Do it our way. But instead what we'll do is we'll go tell them that you're a loving God who can accept and tolerate anything, that your love is so great that you will love them just where they are. You'll love them just where they are. They don't need to change And they'll give a little nod to you. They'll add a little Jesus on the side. Isn't that good enough? That's not what the call is. The grace of the saving gospel of God does not begin with a proclamation of His love and His gentleness. It does require that. Don't hear me wrong. It requires that. That is a key aspect of it. But the grace of the gospel properly begins with a warning. A warning of judgment. Because that's what everybody is going to face if they remain in their sin and their rebellion against a holy, a perfectly righteous God. Go back to Jesus' ministry and you see him in Mark 1.15. He goes and he proclaims a message of what? You, you should know this off the top of your head. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's that simple. Repent and believe in the gospel. But you cannot call someone to repent unless you point to the fact that they have sin that they must turn away from. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel begins with that truth that we can't argue with. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us, me, you, everyone born. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. And then we're told the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. Now if you can't come to grips with that, that you're a sinner in need of salvation, then there is no need for repentance. No need for repentance at all. No need for repentance, there's no need of God's grace, there is certainly no need for a Savior who lived and died and rose again to save all who will come to Him. That's only the second half of that verse, Romans 6.23. That second half is only amazing grace that saves wretches like us, like the song says, when we recognize that the wages of sin is death, that we are sinners, but the free gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
It's a wonderful grace. Jesus obeyed the Father perfectly. He came and he preached the same message. He proclaimed the word and truth. He called for repentance. He called for faith. He said, believe in God, believe also in me. And the promise is that whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God, John 3.18. Jonah's message was simple. There's probably a little bit more to it than what we have in Scripture. But the response is also simple. The people of Nineveh believed God. And do you see how that's written? Do you see how it's written? They did not believe in God. They did not believe about God. That, that actually would be quite easy in Nineveh. They were polytheistic. They believed in a whole mass of gods. What's the harm in adding one more? No, it says they believed God. They believed His Word. It, it wasn't the clever way Jonah spoke. It wasn't the brilliant argument that he made that generated a response. It was the power of God's Word proclaimed, a truth that we're told pierces to the very heart and soul of people. So just like Jonah, we're reminded that we're only the means, we're only the instruments God uses to reach the lost with His powerful gospel. And so we don't have to rely on ourselves. We never need to get trapped in our own minds waiting until we think we have enough confidence to win someone over, to have all the answers to every argument we can come up with because we know the truth of God's Word. Salvation belongs to the, to the Lord. And that it is through the gospel that God grants repentance that leads to life. Acts 11 and 2 Timothy, they both tell us that. God gives repentance in the preaching of His Word. The natural response of anyone who has been saved, who has been freed from slavery to sin, freed to live in Christ, is joy. It is to proclaim God's saving grace to the world. To pray for individuals in our families, in our communities, that, that they would see, that they would be convicted by the Spirit, that they would hear the Word of God and believe God and turn to Him because He makes such a wonderful promise. If you turn, He'll never turn away from you. It is to pray for nationwide repentance and faith, that people will turn to the Son of God, the Son of God who gave His life for His people, who will return one day in power. And glory, to judge the living and the dead. Now, we're not going to proclaim a message that in 40 days, people will be destroyed. Right? It might be one day. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. Certainly on an individual level, it may be tomorrow for that person that you're going to talk to this afternoon, that you wish that you could go back and talk to him again. Spend enough time around people who have had loved ones die and friends die who are Christian, and they will tell you how deeply they regret not being able to speak the truth one more time that person who didn't believe. We, tomorrow's not guaranteed. It might be one day. It might be 10,000 days. It might be 100,000 days. We don't know. But we do know that that appointed day will come, either on our death or when Christ returns. And on that day, unlike the second chances we can pray for now, there will actually be no second chance. And so we'll close by echoing the words of the apostles. Do not hear and receive the grace of God in vain. Do not hear and receive the grace of God in vain. He calls all to repent, to believe in Him, to follow Him. He says He will never lose one who follows Him. Do not hear that grace and walk away from it. He says, behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may not come, but turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in Him. Follow Him. 
Pray to the one who answers prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, such a colloquialism to call you the God of second chances, but Lord, we are so grateful, so grateful that when we call to you that you're faithful, that you're just, that you forgive us our sins, that you'll see in us the righteousness of Jesus, that we can rest in your promise that you remove our sins, you choose to forget them, you choose to look only upon the good, that like the potter, you will take these broken vessels and remold them, reshape them, and make them honorable and useful for your purposes. Would we cry out to you today that you would give us boldness and courage, live for Christ, stand firm on your word, that you would give us wisdom as we take the saving gospel message to the world, helping us see when it is that we call for repentance, when it is that we proclaim love, when it is that we point to you. Lord, we trust in you. We trust in your spirit. We pray that the Holy Spirit guides us and shapes us through your word, which you've given us. Give us a renewed passion, Lord, for your word, for scripture. Open our eyes to see it. Let the truths convict us and change us. And Father, we pray that you would use us to continue that mission of Christ, to seek and to save the lost, that we would point all men, women, and children to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.